Well, good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 11. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 11. And once you're there, go ahead and bow your head with me and we'll pray together. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Your word is a lamp for our feet, it's a light for our path. Lord, we're so thankful that you haven't left us without your word. God, thank you so much. And God, we thank you every day for the blessing of living in this country, but especially today on its birthday, we want to say thank you for our country, for America. What a blessing it is to live here, especially when we hear about other countries, what it's like living there, or practicing your faith, expressing our faith in Jesus uh, is forbidden, it's illegal, uh, people can be tortured, they can be arrested for doing so, and you have faithful witnesses, we have fellow brothers and sisters out there, but Lord God, we are thankful uh, for our country and the fact that we're able to come together and worship freely and, and not have to worry about being arrested or anything like that for our faith. And there's other things uh, about living here that are huge blessings. But God, I pray that we wouldn't uh, become lackadaisical in our faith. I pray that like our brothers and sisters in other countries who are persecuted, I pray, Lord, that we would be on fire for you. We would know that we were given blessings in order to be a blessing. So Lord God, every freedom that you give us we pray that we would use it as you've called us to, to love and serve others and to serve you. So thank you, Lord, for our country. Please help us to celebrate it. And God, we are so thankful that we have a church family to celebrate with. Thank you, God, for each and every person in here. God, I pray that you'll speak through me today. I pray, God, that by your Holy Spirit, you'll help us to hear what it is you have to say to us today. We thank you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. So our passage, like I said earlier, is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 11. So this is Paul speaking, and he says, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid, when face to face with you, but bold towards you when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world, on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. 
So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. Well, this is our third and final week of our series, our short series that we're calling The Renewing of Your Mind, where we're looking at our thoughts, the power of our thoughts, the power of our mindset. And we're basing this on Romans chapter 12, verse 2, in which Paul said, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. We've talked about this. What does it mean to renew something? It means to renovate. If you're going to renovate something, you can't just stand by and expect anything to change. Renovation means that you take an active part in the change. And so if, if Paul expects for us to renew and renovate our minds, it means that we have to get to work. And this is something we do together. This is part of why we have each other, to help each other to renovate and renew our mind. So the first week we talked about what to think, and last week we talked about how to think. But this week we're talking about why to think. Why to think. And this is not a question that we really ask ourselves, because we think, well, I'm always thinking. I wouldn't ask, why should I think, because I'm always thinking. But you know what? Just because you have thoughts doesn't mean that you're thinking. Do you realize that? A lot of times you can have thoughts and your mind can be switched into the off position. Now Paul is calling us to actively think and he's going to show us in this passage why we need to actively think. Viktor Frankl in 1946 published one of the most influential books of our time. For me, certainly it's one of the most powerful and helpful books I've ever read. His book was called Man's Search for meaning. And I've, I've shared this story with some of you before, but in uh, Man's Search for Meaning, the first half is detailing his time uh, in concentration camps. You know, he was in Auschwitz, he lost certain family members there, but after that, you know, the second half of the book details how people had to leave, they had to start a life, they had to find meaning outside of camp, put their life back together. And Viktor Frankl, he was a psychiatrist, among many other things. And so he'll go over in the book sometimes how he counseled certain people. And in one of those accounts, he says, Once an elderly general practitioner consulted me because of his severe depression. He could not overcome the loss of his wife, who had died two years before, and whom he had loved above all else. Now. How could I help him? What should I tell him? Well, I refrained from telling him anything, but instead confronted him with the question, what would have happened, doctor, if you had died first and your wife would have had to survive you? Oh, he said, for her, this would have been terrible, how she would have suffered. Whereupon I replied, you see, doctor, such a suffering has been spared her and it was you who have spared her this suffering, to be sure, 
at the price that now you have to survive and mourn her. He said no word, but shook my hand and calmly left my office. Now, something had switched in his brain when, when Viktor Frankl had done this. And when Viktor Frankl, did you notice what he said? He said, I refrain from just saying something to him. And instead, I asked him a question. What was he trying to do? He was trying to get this man to actively think. Because, of course, he had thoughts. He had thoughts about his wife dying, and they were just floating around. But he was not thinking. And because he was not thinking, he was not taking his thoughts captive. Do you realize that's what Viktor Frankl was trying to get this man to do? He was trying to get him to take his thoughts captive. Why? Why is it so important that we take our thoughts captive? Because if we don't take our thoughts captive, our thoughts will take us captive and will live at their mercy. Have you ever experienced that? Having thoughts in your mind where you just you're at the mercy of whatever feeling or thought you're having throughout the day. And Paul says, this is not how Christians are meant to live. Not at the mercy of their thoughts. Their thoughts are meant to live at the mercy of them. And how does that happen? Well, we actively think. We take our thoughts captive. To actively think is to challenge our thoughts, to examine our thoughts, to stand up to our thoughts. You know, but did you realize or did you notice just in the first six verses how much military language Paul uses? Paul uses a lot of military language. He uses words and phrases like wage war, weapons, fight, power, demolish strongholds, take captive. All of those, that's all military language. And why does Paul use so much military language when talking about our minds because in all of us in all of our minds there's a war going on there's a war going on in all of our minds and if we want to win this war if you want to win this war in your mind Paul tells you that there are three things that you must do the first one is you must know the reality of the war in your mind the second thing you have to know is the weapons for the war in your mind and the third thing you have to know is the goal of the war in your mind. So first, let's look at the reality of the war in your mind. Now, in this passage, what did Paul say was the problem with the way that the Corinthians were thinking? What was the problem with the way they were thinking? They weren't thinking. They weren't thinking. That's the problem. Why weren't they thinking? Well, in order to understand that, I'm going to have to give you some background on the text. A couple weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians. Now, why was 1 Corinthians written? Well, because when you read 1 Corinthians, you see that all of 1 Corinthians is about divisions within the church. In the church, there were so many div different divisions about so many different issues that Paul had to write to them about that. But some people resented Paul's authority. Some people said, you know, why do we have to listen to Paul? So 2 Corinthians is written about a division between the church and Paul. Because some of them have said, 
I'm not going to listen to Paul anymore. I'm going to listen to different teachers. Why? Because other teachers had come in and started teaching a different gospel, a different Jesus than Paul had been teaching them. And why were they listening to those teachers and not to Paul? Because those teachers were impressive. Paul jokingly, mockingly calls them the super apostles. Oh, wow, they're the super apostles. Now, they're not really super apostles, but apparently they think so. Why? Because they're so impressed and enamored with these teachers. Now, Paul, look at what he says in verse 10. In verse 10, he says, For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. So they're listening to these other teachers because they're impressive. They speak eloquently. They look impressive. Paul, he doesn't speak, according to him, very well. We know from history, from firsthand accounts, that Paul was not really anything to look at. You know, so Paul physically, when you look at him, he's unimpressive. When he speaks, he's unimpressive. So what are they doing? They're going to these other teachers. And look, because they were so impressed with these false teachers, what were they doing? They had stopped thinking and they were letting these other false teachers think for them. It's not that Paul was saying, hey, mindlessly listen to me, not them. No, Paul was saying, you're only listening to them because you think that they're impressive. And in the very next chapter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 through 4, look what he says. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Who did he just compare them to? He said, you're like Eve listening to the serpent. Now let's go back to Eve listening to the serpent. What was the serpent saying? He's saying, did God really say not to eat from that tree? No, God, you can't listen to God. He just doesn't want you to become like him. He knows that if you eat from it, surely you'll become like him. What was he doing? He was lying. He was telling a lie to Eve about God. And what did Eve do? Did she think for herself? Did she challenge that thought? Did she stand up to that thought? Did she take that thought captive? No, she let the serpent think for her. And since the serpent was lying to her, she believed and she thought a lie about God. And Paul says, that's what's happening to you. You're listening to these false teachers, these super apostles, and they're lying to you. And you're letting them think for you. And because you're letting them think for you, you're thinking lies about God. And this is the reality of the war in your mind. The reality of the war in your mind is that the lies of the enemy are at war with the truth of God. That's the war that's going on in your mind. That's a reality, whether you acknowledge it or not. That's what's going on and that's what ha what's happening every single day. Now, 
What did Jesus say about the truth? He said, you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? It will set you free. So Jesus, he came not only just to die for our sins, but to tell us the truth. Why? To set us free. So if Jesus came to tell us the truth to set us free, why does Satan, why does the enemy, why does the devil come down and tell us lies to keep us from experiencing that freedom that God has for us? And if we let him think for us, if we let him tell us lies and blindly accept them, let that be our thoughts, then we won't get to experience the freedom that God has for us. Pastor Greg Rochelle is a pastor, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, he's a pastor of a church in Oklahoma City, a big church called Life Church. He talks about how when he first started that church, he and uh, his fellow staff, they would play Capture the Flag. Capture the Flag, I've never played it, but he said that it got so violent, people were so competitive in the office that people got injured. So they had to establish some guidelines for playing capture the flag in the office. One of those guidelines was, hey, no attacks before 8 a.m. Can't attack anybody before 8 a.m. So Craig says that he likes to get to work early. And one morning he got to work at 7 a.m. He said something didn't feel quite right. Something felt off. His, his spider senses, spidey senses were tingling. What's Looks like somebody's watching me. And he went over to his closet and he opened it and there was Pastor Kevin, another pastor in the church, had gotten there early. He didn't know when he could have been there all night, but he'd gotten there waiting to surprise attack at eight o'clock. But Craig opened the closet and then shut it immediately. He said, you're staying in there all day, Kevin. And he got a chair and he tried to wedge it underneath the door handle, but it it wouldn't fit. No matter how hard he tried to get it to fit, it wouldn't fit. But he couldn't let Kevin know that. So he said, I'm putting a door underneath the door handles, Kevin. You're locked in for the rest of the day. Is that true? No. That's a lie. What's the truth? The door's unlocked. All Kevin has to do is push it open and he'll be free. But Craig laughed because, hey, he just accepted it. He just believed it. He didn't try at all to open the door. He let Pastor Craig do what? Think for him. What's the problem with that? Craig told him a lie and he believed that lie. Because he believed that lie, he couldn't open the door and get free. Now don't worry, he eventually got out. Pastor Craig says that he was uh, 20 minutes later in a marriage counseling session when all of a sudden uh, one of the tiles opened up and Pastor Kevin was looking down at him pretty angrily. So he ended up okay. But do you see that when you believe a lie, it keeps you from experiencing freedom that you could have with the truth. The truth will set you free. But a lot of times we have thoughts and not every thought that you have is from yourself. A lot of the thoughts that you hear are from the world, which are from who? The ruler of this world, the prince of this world, Satan, the enemy, who he doesn't get to stay the ruler of this world, but he does have influence over this world. And so not every thought that you have is a good thought. Many of your thoughts come from who? From him. As scary as that is to believe, that's who many of your thoughts 
come from. So what does Paul tell us to do? Does he say, just turn your thoughts off. When somebody teaches you about Jesus, just turn your thoughts off. No, think. Even right now, when you're listening to me, I don't want you to turn your mind off. Think, think critically about what I'm saying. Measure it a bit against what God says in Scripture. What does Paul say to do? He says, wage war. Wage war. That means actively think. But we will not wage war unless we realize the reality of the war in our minds. That there is a war in our minds. Whether you want to fight that war or not, there is a war going on in your mind. Why is it so important that we think? Why is it so important? Because if we don't, if we don't think, we do have an enemy who will do our thinking for us. If we don't think, we have an enemy who will think for us. So it's important that we actively think. So that's what the first thing Paul shows us, the reality of the war in your mind. But the second thing he shows us in this passage, he shows us the weapons for the war in your mind. Look at verse 4 through the beginning of verse 5. In verse 4 he says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So look, what is he saying? He's, he's saying, on our own, we don't stand a chance against the devil's lies. On our own, without God's weapons, we don't stand a chance against the devil's lies. But he says, with God's weapons, the devil's lies don't stand a chance against us. Now look, why do we need God's weapons? Look, think about a soldier. When they go off into war, are they going off in, in their street clothes? No, that never, ever happens. What do they do? They put on their helmet, put on their gear, they take up their weapon, right? What are they admitting when they do that? They're admitting that I'm not good enough, I'm not strong enough on my own. I need help. I need help. I need weapons that are stronger than me. You know, if you tell a soldier, there's a fortress, there's a stronghold, I need you to destroy it. Are they going to go up to it and... Mm. Mm, I'm going to destroy this stronghold. No. Mm, I'm going to punch this. No, of course they're not going to do that. They're going to take a weapon. They're going to take an explosive, something that's bigger than them, something that's stronger than them, and that is what they're going to use to demolish that stronghold. And look, what we need to demolish, the lies that the enemy tells us, the strongholds of the enemy, are not weapons of the flesh, weapons of the world. No, weapons from God, which he says has not human power, but divine power to demolish strongholds. Those are the weapons that we need. And good news, Paul says, those are the weapons that we have. Those are the weapons that we have. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 17, he gives us a detailed account of those weapons. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, 
against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realm. So what has he just done? He's just acknowledged the reality of the war in our minds. But then he talks about the weapons of the war in our minds. He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That sounds like we have a lot of weapons to fight against the lies of the enemy with. Am I right? That's a lot that God's given us. Now, that's great that we have those weapons, right? But I think I know what you're thinking. Okay, how do I use those weapons? How do I use those weapons? After all, whenever you watch a James Bond movie, you know, I think his name is Q, the guy who always gives the weapons to James Bond he gives them to James, and then he explains how to use them. Paul, that's what Paul's doing here. He's giving us our weapons, but he's also explaining how to use them. But not just Paul. We see in the Psalms how to use these weapons, because we see in the Psalms that the psalmist uses the full armor of God, the weapons of God, to do what? Demolish lies, demolish strongholds. I'll give you an example from Psalm 42, verse 3. The psalmist says, My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? That is the stronghold. That's the lie. What is a lie that Satan has put in his mind through other people? God's not here. God's not present. God doesn't care about you. That's the lie. That's the stronghold. Now, he could just turn his mind off and say, Okay, yeah, God's not here. But no, he doesn't turn his mind off. He turns his mind on. He thinks, he takes those thoughts captive. How? With the weapons that God has given him. In Psalm 42, verse 5, he says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. How is he just put on the full armor of God? How is he using the weapons of God? Well, think about it. He's taken on and he's put on the helmet of salvation. What does he call God? You're my Savior and my God. I expect you to rescue me. I expect you to save me. I'm wearing that like a helmet. What does he do? He takes up the sword of the Spirit. Look, when he says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. Is that just being blindly optimistic? Is He just saying that? What is He basing that on? He's basing that on God's Word. Over and over in Scripture, God has said, I won't ever leave you. I will never forsake you. I'll never leave my people. So He can be confident that God won't leave him. Why? Because that's God's word to him. That's a sword that he will take up against the lies of the enemy. What else does he take up? He takes up the shield of faith. What does he tell himself? He says, put your hope in God. Put your hope in him. Not in your feelings. No, in God. 
because I can't see God, I can't feel God right now, but I trust and believe by faith that He's there, and I won't live by sight, I'll live by faith. That's my shield. And with my shield, the enemy can shoot all the flaming arrows he wants. They'll just deflect off of him because I have faith. And look, he puts on the breastplate of righteousness. What good does that do? Well, he's not saying, God, you'll save me because I'm good. It's going to take a long time for God to save us if we're waiting for him to save us based on our goodness. No, he says, you'll save me because you're good and you love me. That's what I'm putting on and over my heart. Your righteousness, your goodness. What else does he do? He buckles himself, he wraps himself with a belt of truth. What does Paul say? Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is noble, whatever is honest, if anything is excellent, praiseworthy, think about those things. That's what he's doing. He's wrapping himself, not with what is false, but what is true. He's wrapping himself with it. What else is he doing? His feet are being fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Look, he said, I've spent days lying on my bed with nothing to eat or drink but my own tears. But I'm ready to go now. I'm ready to get up and go. What does he say? He says, I will yet praise him. Why? Because the gospel of peace, the good news of peace is what has flooded his heart. And that's what got, what's gotten him ready to go. Now look, with all of these weapons that God has given him, what has he just done? He's demolished that stronghold. God's not with you. God's not doesn't care about you. He just demolished that. He just exploded that. How? With the weapons that God gives us, which means what? We should never, ever even dream of going into war, going into battle every single day in our minds without the weapons that God gives us. Every day, put on the full armor of God. Put it on. Don't, go, don't even dream of going into battle on your own power. But every day, go into battle with God's weapons. Why? Because like Paul said, they have divine power, divine power to do what? Demolish strongholds. So Paul, he shows us the reality of the war in our minds. And he also shows us the weapons for the war in our minds. But now, the last thing he shows us is the goal of the war in our minds. You know, if you're a soldier, if you're fighting a battle, you have an objective. If I'm fighting this war in my mind, What's my objective? Well, look at the end of verse 5. At the ending of verse 5, he says, We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's our objective. Take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, I want you to think about what Paul did not say. Paul didn't say, We take captive every thought to kill it. He didn't say that. He didn't say, we take captive every thought to leave it there. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say, we take captive every thought to hide it from God. He didn't say that. He said, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, if I have a captive and I want to make them obedient to someone, what do I do with them? I take them 
Jew then? What is Paul saying? He's saying, if our thoughts are ever going to become obedient to Christ, what needs to happen? They need to be brought to Christ. Do you see that? Our thoughts need to be brought to Christ. Now, back to the Psalms. The Psalms are so important for us to learn how to think because generally in every other book of the Bible, we see people's thoughts, but we see them horizontally, spoken out to other people. But in the Psalms, every thought that we see expressed is vertical, sent up to God. That means every thought that you see in the Psalms, it's been a prayed thought. It's been a thought given to God. Now, Psalm 137, when you read that prayer, some background on it is that this psalm was written by an Israelite who is in exile in Babylon. You remember that at one point in time, the Israelites were taken off into captivity in Babylon. And in Psalm 137, this Israelite is in exile because the Babylonians came in, they destroyed their home, they burned down the temple, they took thousands of them captive, most of them captive to Babylon. So put yourself in their shoes. If somebody killed your friends, if they took a lot of people that, you know, let's say somebody came and took a lot of us off to another country, to another place, we would be hurt. We would be angry, right? We'd be mad. So obviously this person is very angry. And in Psalm 137, verse 7 through 9, he prays, remember, this is a prayer Remember, Lord, what the Edomites, the Babylonians, did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried, tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. What? That's a prayer? That's in the Psalms? That doesn't make any sense. You know, just this week I was at a restaurant eating and and I looked outside and uh, there was a dad putting his little infant baby in the car. And my first reaction was, oh, be careful. I thought, oh, like this little tiny, he was holding him, holding his head up like this. And I thought, oh man, just be careful. Get him into that car. And of course he made that exchange. That was just such a tiny, helpless little infant. And the psalm said, I would be so happy if I could take my enemy's enemy's baby and just dash its head against the rock and split it open. That's in our prayer book. How could we ever pray something like that? And yet, we're instructed to. I've had people tell me, pray the psalms. Spiritual directors say, pray the psalms. I say, I can't pray that. I can't pray, I'd be so happy if I could take my enemy's baby and kill it, split its head open. But there's tons of psalms where there's something incredibly hateful and incredibly violent. What do we do with those? You know, for many years, what did I do? I edited the psalms. I would pray, Ooh, I don't like that part. Uh, that doesn't sit well with me. Uh, I Jesus told us not to hate. I can't pray this hate against somebody. But look, When I was editing the Psalms, I was missing the point of the Psalms. Do you realize that? The point of the Psalms is to bring all of our thoughts to God. That's what the Psalms do. It says we can bring all of our thoughts to God. Look, 
We find hate in the Psalms. But the Psalms teach us that hate is not meant to be suppressed. Hate is meant to be prayed. We weren't meant to suppress our hate, hide it, push it down. No, we were meant to give it to God, send it up to God, and trust Him with it. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Answering God, his book about the Psalms, he says, we want to be at our best before God, right? Prayer, we think, means presenting ourselves before God so that He will be pleased with us. We put on our Sunday best in our prayers. Psalm 137 is well on the way of doing just what we expect, bringing out the best in us when, without warning, this fissure opens up, a dark crevice of hate, and brings out the worst. It is easy to be honest before God with our hallelujahs. It is somewhat more difficult to be honest in our hurts. It is nearly impossible to be honest before God in the dark emotions of our hate. So we commonly suppress our negative emotions. Or when we do express them, we do it far from the presence or what we think is the presence of God. Ashamed or embarrassed to be seen in the curse-stained bib overalls. But when we pray the Psalms, these classic prayers of God's people, we find that will not do. We must pray who we actually are, not who we think we should be. In prayer, all is not sweetness and light. The way of prayer is not to cover our unlovely emotions so that they will appear respectable, but expose them so that they can be enlisted in the work of the kingdom. Expose them. Why? So that they can be enlisted in the work of the kingdom, which shows us what? God doesn't want to eliminate our thoughts. God wants to transform our thoughts. Do you see that? Do you realize that? And yet, how do we typically try to deal with our bad thoughts, the thoughts that we don't want to have, the thoughts that we say, well, Jesus said, don't think like that. So I don't want to think like that. So we say, I'm just going to stop thinking about it. I'm not going to think like that. That doesn't work. Has it ever worked for you? No, it doesn't work. Let's try a little experiment. I'm going to prove to you that it doesn't work. Whatever you do right now, do not think of a blue elephant. Do not think about a blue elephant. Whatever you do, do not think about a blue elephant. What is everybody in this room thinking about right now? A blue, a blue elephant. But I told you not to think about a blue elephant. Why are you thinking about it? You know, a lot of times when we say, don't think about that, don't think about that, don't think about that, it makes it worse. We think about it even more and more and more. God doesn't want to eliminate our bad thoughts. He wants to transform them. But the only way that can happen is if we give them to him. But we're embarrassed to give them to him. God, I don't want... It's so embarrassing for God to know what I was thinking about just last night. Well, guess what? He already knows. He already knows. And you know what? Whatever that thought is, it can't be any worse than I wish I could split a baby's head open. And that's in the Psalms. If the psalmist can pray that, you can give any thought you have to God expecting him to transform it. Any thought you have what should you do with it? Should you hide it? 
You try to kill it? No, lay it on the altar and let him transform it. That is, after all, what you do with a sacrifice. You lay it on the altar and you expect God to transform it. And I love how the message translates Psalm 5.3. It says, Every morning I lay out the pieces of my life on your altar and watch for fire to descend. And that's what we do with our thoughts when we give them to Jesus. We lay them on the altar and say, Jesus, only you can transform my thoughts. So I'm taking my thoughts captive and I'm giving them to you. I'm submitting them to you. I'm powerless to change them and transform them. You're powerful to change them and transform them. So, so Paul says we need to take our thoughts captive to make them obedient to Christ. But how do we make them obedient to Christ? How, how does Christ transform them? We take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ by pointing them to Christ. After all, if I have a captive and I'm supposed to take them somewhere, do I say, uh, let's just go in any... No, I, we're going here. So I point there. We're going here. That's what we do with our thoughts. We take our thoughts captive to make them obedient to Christ by pointing them to Christ. And don't you see, that's what Paul has been doing this entire passage Paul has been pointing his thoughts to Christ. Look at verse 1, and then let's look at verse 11. Verse 1, Paul says, By the humility and gentleness of me, no, of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am, and he's talking sarcastically here, timid when face to face with you, but bold when towards you went away. Now look what he says in verse 11. He says, people that say stuff like that about me, such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. So what are some people upset about? Ooh, Paul is one way when he's gone. Paul is one way when he's here. He can speak harshly to us and rebuke us in his letters, and then he can speak gently to us when he comes here. And Paul says, no, I don't. I'm not two-faced. I speak to you gently when I need to, and I speak to you harshly when I need to. Now, look, think about how much Paul has sacrificed for this church. Paul has helped to start this church. Paul has spent over a year with this church. Paul has gone hungry for this church. Paul has been cold for this church. Paul's been in prison for this church. Paul has sacrificed so much for this church. And what do they do? They slander him. They put him down. They don't defend him. Paul has every right to be as harsh as he wants to with them, but he's not. What does he say in verse 1? He says, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. What is Paul doing? He's taking his thoughts captive to be obedient to Christ by pointing his thoughts to Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm gentle with you when I need to be, because Jesus is gentle with me when he needs to be. And I'm harsh with you and I rebuke you when I need to, but only because Jesus is harsh and bold with me and rebukes me when he needs to be harsh and bold with me and rebuke me. He's turning his thoughts to Jesus. And that is what we need to do as well. Look, because Paul pointed his thoughts 
to Christ in every situation, his thoughts could become obedient to Christ in every situation. And look, this is what I want you to hear from all this. Our thoughts can only be transformed by Jesus when our hearts are melted by Jesus. Do you realize that? Our, our hearts won't be melted by Jesus until our minds are pointed towards Jesus. So what does this look like? I want to give you concrete examples so that you can actually do this in your life. Look, in life, people are going to annoy you. People are going to make you impatient. Oh, this person is so aggravating. When you are annoyed by someone, remember, you have to remember how patient Jesus has been with you. You have to remember that. And only when you remember how patient Jesus has been with you can you become patient with that person that is annoying you. Look, in life, people are going to hurt you. People are going to hurt you. And what is that going to do? It's going to make you hate them. Gosh, I hate this person so much. Now, we think, you know, Jesus said, if anybody hates somebody, they've committed murder against them in their heart. So we say, don't hate someone, don't hate someone. But the answer is not to eliminate that. The answer is to point that thought to Jesus. You have to remember how much God has forgiven you in Christ. And you remember how much he's forgiven you. Then, only then, can you start to forgive that person who has hurt you. You know, I've hurt God so much more than anybody else in my life has hurt me. And yet he's forgiven me. Only when I realize how much he's forgiven me can I forgive and start to love the person that I hate. You know, when you are filled with pride and you look at someone and you say, I'm better than that person for whatever reason. I'm better than that person. What do you have to do? You have to remember how low Jesus made himself to serve you. He took on the form of a servant. He washed your feet. How could you ever say, I'm better than anybody? No, only by seeing how low Jesus made himself for you can you keep from extending yourself above someone, looking down on them by pointing your thoughts to Jesus. Look, Jesus said, if you hate someone, you commit murder against them in your heart. But also, he said, if anyone looks at somebody with lust in their heart, they've committed adultery. Now, you know, that makes sense if somebody's married. You know, that's hurtful to your spouse if you're looking at other people that you're not married to with lust. But what if you're single? What if you're not married? Well, who cares if you lust after someone? Well, love says, what can I do for you? That's what you enter into a covenant into when you get married. Lust says, what can you do for me? It's self-serving, self-seeking, self-indulgent. It turns somebody else into an object. And Jesus is basically saying, when you look at somebody with lust in your heart, you're just making them into an object. And so when we hear Jesus saying, don't lust after someone, we say, don't think about that, don't think about that. But no, the only way that thought can be transformed is if you remember the person that I'm tempted to lust after, Jesus made them, and he loves them, and he died for them. And only when I turn my thoughts there can I start to love that person too and stop saying, what can you do for me? And start saying, what can I do for you? I love you now because I've turned my thoughts to how much Jesus loves you. 
Look, when you feel stressed and scared of the future, remember that the same Jesus who calmed the sea and multiplied the fish and the loaves of bread, the same Jesus that walked on water, is the same Jesus that is right there with you, right now. Look, when you are full of grief and sadness, you have to remember that Jesus weeps with you just as he wept with Mary and Martha at Lazarus's tomb. When you are hopeless, what do you have to remember? You have to remember that Jesus did what? He rose from the dead. And on the other side of whatever cross you're on right now is what? An empty grave. Because of Jesus, you don't just have hope. You have a living hope that cannot and will not ever die. And you know, when you, when you feel insufficient, when you have thoughts of, I'm not good enough, I'm stupid, I'm dumb, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Remember, what Jesus said to Paul is what Jesus says to you. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness, not in your strength, but in your weakness. Look, I can't run the whole gamut of every thought that we have here, but hopefully you get the idea of what we're meant to do with our thoughts. Give them to Jesus. How? By pointing them to Jesus. And when you point all your thoughts to the incredible love of Jesus, your thoughts can be transformed by the incredible love of Jesus. Do you see that? And look, in the Gospel accounts, when people had broken bodies, what did they do? Where did they take those broken bodies? To Jesus. Somebody had a friend who had a broken body. They took their friend to Jesus. They carried them on their mats. They raised, literally raised roofs and put people down in a house. People who had leprosy said, Lord, heal me. People who were blind said, Lord, heal me. People came to Jesus and laid their broken bodies down at Jesus' feet so that he could touch them and heal Heal them. Do you know what? Do you know that that's what you can do with your broken thoughts? You can lay your broken thoughts down at the feet of Jesus. Do that. Lay your broken thoughts down at the feet of Jesus. Let him touch them. Let him heal them. And in doing so, he will heal you. Let's pray. Lord, we are full of broken thoughts. We are full of lies from the enemy that we've believed for so long. They've kept us in chains. They've kept us from enjoying the freedom that you have for us. God, we don't want to lay down on our deathbeds and say, I, I lived a lie. I lived scared. I lived anxious. I lived worried. I lived self-indulgent. No, we want to say, Lord, I live free. I live free because my thoughts were free, and my thoughts were free because they were pointed to my Lord who sets me free. God, point our thoughts to you today. Whenever the enemy tells us lies, remind us of the truth. You're here with us. You love us. You laid your life down for us, and because of that, we are raised to life with you, never to die again. God, that's what we need to be thinking about. God, transform our mind. Renew our minds, Lord. God, that can only happen when we give you our minds, God. That's why we think, so that we can take our thoughts captive and make them obedient 
to Christ. We love you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the truth, for setting us free. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.